Welcome in to the Deep Dive Bible Study here, Wednesday night, 7.30, Kings of Compromise, part 32. My name is Tim and I am your host. And if you would do me the solid favor of hitting that subscribe button, the notification bell, the thumbs up, liking the video helps the algorithm, spreads the word. And I'm so glad that you are here as we go verse by verse through first and second Kings. And can you believe it? Part 32, we've only got two episodes left. And today we come upon a guy named Josiah. Josiah is the last good king of the northern kingdom. And I want to say it like this. Uh, Scripture prophesies his coming. Uh, It also prophesies the reforms that he will enact upon the nation. And his reforms will not stop the impending judgment upon the nation from God. And in many ways, Josiah, you could say it like this, is the last great hope for the people of Israel as they await the judgment of God, which is irrevocable at this point. Josiah is a picture of what we're living under right now. Jesus Christ is the last true good king of Israel who reforms a people saved for God to preserve them through the judgment and bring them into everlasting life. And that is our study today of the Kings of Compromise. Let's hit it. How many of you say, man, I need spiritual reformation in my life. It is a very important, uh, I would say, season. It is a very important need to have regular spiritual reform. So with that in mind, our title today is How to Be Spiritual Reformed as we look at Josiah's life. Again, the last good king of Israel. He, he was prophesied, okay? He was prophesied to be born, to restore, to destroy the idols of Israel, and then to uh, bring the people of God back to himself, back to God. And, and, and then in spite of those reforms, there would be judgment. So as I've said all along through this study, what we have seen before, we are, what we are seeing today, we have seen before, and the uh, cultural decline that we experience right now in our world is nothing new. This has happened historically throughout generations. Sometimes there's a reform, but then there's also a deterioration culturally. Well, this is the last reform of Israel. It'll be the last reform before their judgment. Uh, Josiah is the great-grandson of Hezekiah, the last good king of Israel, or Judah. When I, when I talk about Israel now, can we just talk about Israel, king, uh, Israel as Israel? Because the northern kingdom of Israel has been handed over to the Assyrians. Some of the people have been repopulated into the land. The southern kingdom of Judah is the only part of Israel remaining. And remember, I said that under Hezekiah's reforms, some of those northerners who had been uh, dispersed by the Assyrians and then repopulated into the land of Israel by the Assyrian king. Some of those Israelites have been reformed through Hezekiah and been restored back to the kingdom from all the tribes of Israel, other than the two tribes in the southern kingdom of Judah. So, so when I say Israel from now on, if you don't mind, it means Judah, Judah and Israel. Same thing from this point on, because the northern kingdom is irrelevant at this point. They're gone. But the last king of Israel that will do any good is Josiah. Bring back one last reform before God brings inevitable judgment. The great-grandson of Hezekiah, the last good king of, of Israel, and now he is the final hope. And just like Jesus, uh, Josiah is prophesied to come about. Uh, Josiah spiritually reforms the people. And just like Jesus, he's it. I mean, if you listen to him and follow him, you're saved. And if you're not, if not, you're going to be handed over to the to the to the uh ultimate destruction that is sent by God from the empire of Babylon. So what we're looking at here is our story. And we're looking at a a lesson in how to be spiritually reformed. And it really isn't that complicated, but Josiah's life gives us a clear picture of that. And let's hit it with through the text. 
Okay, so 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 1, Josiah was eight years old. Josiah's name, by the way, means healed of Jehovah. That's what his name means. Uh, his mother's name is mentioned there. He reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem, so he had a very short life, interestingly enough. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the son of Adiah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkoth. And he, this is Josiah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father. I underline David, his father, because this is one of only three kings. Well, really one of only two kings that are mentioned as a son of David, Hezekiah being the last one. And now Josiah, I mean, Solomon, yes, because Solomon was his direct son, but these are you know, long ways off ancestors of David, Hezekiah and Josiah, and they are referenced as sons of David. And the text is being very explicit here. This is a great king. There are good kings in Israel. There's eight good kings. Hezekiah and Josiah are, are part of the three really good kings, and that would be David, Hezekiah, and Josiah. So can I just stop here and say that if you're disappointed with the leadership of your country, yeah, or maybe you look disappointed by the last, I don't know, four or five presidents or whatever. Or you say, man, you look back at on America's history and we don't have many good presidents. Well, no nation has many good leaders. Even ancient Israel did not have many very good leaders. Again, 20 kings in Judah to the south. Eight of them are good. Three of them are really good. So, and, and, and those three really good come out of the eight. So t- 20 kings, that means 12 kings were evil and wicked. So... A preponderance of evil kings or evil presidents or evil national leaders is nothing new. It's the problem of the human condition, everybody's evil. Anyway, he walked in the ways of David, his father. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now, this is the synopsis. Verse 1 and 2 are the synopsis of what Josiah's life will be like. But the next verse unpacks how it happened. But before we get there, let me give you some context because it's important. Josiah comes to the kingdom after 51 years of idolatry under Almost uh, Manasseh, and then a few more years, two more years, under Ammon, Manasseh's son, Josiah's father. So 53 years, think about it, 53 years of evil culture has dominated the kingdom of Judah to the south, kingdom of Israel, and seemingly out of nowhere, a spiritual reform takes place. And I bring this up and I emphasize it because you have to understand that God is never without the resources to bring about a great revival, no matter how wicked a nation might become. Don't give up on America. God has not given up on America. As long as there's one preacher preaching the word of God, there's hope for America. Now that's the spiritual, that's the spiritual context of this text. Let's talk about the international context because that's equally important. Assyria, who had just dominated the Northern Kingdom, is on a steep decline. A prophet Nahum has also been, has been raised up in this time of Josiah to prophesy Assyria's doom. You remember the prophet Jonah. Jonah prophesied against Assyria's capital city, Nineveh. Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah and God spared the city, but then they declined again. And then Nahum, was, Nahum is sent to Nineveh to prophesy doom upon the city and God, and they don't repent and they are handed over and judged. And so Assyria is on a steep moral and political and international influence decline because of sin. Babylon is not yet the superpower that it will become and ultimately take captive the, the, uh, the people of Judah into exile. And so what Israel, Judah, and Israel are experiencing at this point is a break, 
a break from the pressures of all the foreign nations trying to destroy them. So there's a great opportunity for the people of Israel to return to God. And usually, international peacetime does not promote spiritual reformation. But this is one of the few times where Israel experiences international peace and spiritual reformation. And I would like to say that we can have that happen now. In, our, in America right now, we might not be threatened by China as much as we think we are, or, you know, who else is our, who else is our threat? Russia. But, but we have this great uh, amount of international peace, and yet God can bring about spiritual reform. You don't need to have enemies breathing down your throat to have spiritual reform. That's, that's the point that I want to make right here. So that's the international context. We know the spiritual context, 53 years of apostasy, the, the international context. And now let's talk about the, uh, what can I term this as, the prophetic context. God has raised up, not just Josiah, who we will see how he is raised up as a spiritual reformer of the nation, but he has raised up four prophets to partner with Josiah at the same time. Scripture interprets scripture. Now, you, this Second Kings doesn't tell you this, and that's why you need me, <laughs> so that I can give you scriptural interpretation and help you understand the context uh, historically. Who else God has raised up prophetically to lead Israel in a nationwide reform, the, the most powerful reform since David, really? Those prophets are Jeremiah, who is a son of the priest during Josiah's reign, uh, Zephaniah, who is a probably a distant second or third cousin of Josiah, Nahum, who is prophesying again uh, against um, Nineveh, and Habakkuk, who I don't know who he's related to, but he's a prophet. So all four of those guys, don't they have books in the Bible? Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. They're all prophes- prophet, prophetic books in the Old Testament. These four guys, these four powerhouses of God are used in concert with Josiah's political and leadership reforms to bring Israel back to God. So I bring that up to say it takes more than one man. I mean, I I know I said you can get down to one preacher, but it takes more than one man to bring about a great sweeping national revival. And that's what we have here in 2 Kings chapter 22. Let's look at how it goes down. Verse three, it says, in the 18th year of King Josiah. So he is now 26 years old. God uses young people. You do not have to wait until you're 30 to be used of God. Josiah is 26 years old and something dramatic happens in his life that shifts the course of human history. It says here in his 26th year or 18th year of reign, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the secretary to the house of the Lord saying, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that is has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people, and let it be given in the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are of the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters, and to the builders, and to the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarry stone to repair the house, but no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. So way back in 2 Kings chapter 12, you remember a guy named Joash, Jehoash, sorry, Jehoash started this uh, constant renovation work on the temple. And this had lasted for several years, several hundred years actually at this point, to the point of Josiah. Josiah is keeping that, that, that work alive. And so people are reforming the temple. It is in the 18th year of his reign. And there is a, another guy 
that is heavily involved in this season of Josiah's life, in the season of Israel's life. And his name is Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah chapter one, verse one. It says, the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, that's the priest we just were notified about, uh, who were in Anathoth, the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah. There it is. The son of Ammon, king of Judah. So Josiah, son of wicked king Ammon, in the 13th year of his reign, that's when Jeremiah started to prophesy. So let's do the math. Uh, Josiah is reigning at the age of eight, at the age of 26, 18 years in, he has them renovating the, the temple and they're going to find something specific in the temple that's going to lead to this renovation. But five years earlier than that, Jeremiah is prophesying. And we, there's some questions that I have for the text and the text does not clearly answer them. And I'm going to tell you what those questions are in just a moment, but I'm going to move forward so that we can get to that question and then unpack it because there's some spiritual principles that we can pick up here. Uh, so they're cleaning out the uh, temple they're repairing the temple. And then this happens in verse eight. It says, and Hilkiah, the high priest said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Now, remember that Hilkiah is the father of Jeremiah. Okay. So Jeremiah's dad finds the book of the law. That would be the five books of Moses. This is the Torah. Okay, that's what that's referring to. I have found the five books of Moses in the house of the Lord, and Hilkiah gave the book to Shephan, and he read it. And Shephan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight over the house of the Lord. Then Shephan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book, and Shephan read it before the king. So during this cleaning of house, they stumble upon a Bible. Now, now, here's why I bring up that whole Jeremiah deal, because Jeremiah, remember, prophesied, started his ministry five years before this happened. And my question for the biblical text, which I don't see clarity here, and I'm just going to make some postulations. Jeremiah 15, 16, Jeremiah says, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. There's a couple options here. Did Jeremiah... This youth, remember when Jeremiah was called by God in Jeremiah 1, you can turn there in your own Bible. It says that God calls him and he says, God, I don't know how to speak. I'm a youth. And he says, don't tell me that you're young. I will put words in your mouth and I will tell you what to say and don't be afraid. So you've got this young son of a priest named Jeremiah hanging in the temple. My question is simply this. Is he the one that found the book of the law, gave it to his father, Hilkiah, and said, Dad, this book has been burning in my heart. Remember Jeremiah is the one that says, your word is like a fire shut up in my bones. Is Jeremiah spending five years in the temple, just getting, you know, stronger in the Lord and in the work of the Lord. And then he just can't take it anymore. And he gives it to his father. His father brings it to the king. I like that hypothesis. The Bible does not make it clear, but I like that hypothesis. Here's why I like the, the hypothesis. Because young people need to know that if you give yourself to the heart, to the word of God, God can raise you up to affect older generations, drawing them back to God. God can use you to speak to world leaders, culture shapers, business leaders, and God's work in you can transform the culture around you in a powerful way. That's, that's my hypothesis. My hypothesis is that Jeremiah started the, reading the word 
and for five years hibernated with the word and then gave it to his father, couldn't take it anymore. That's, that's my, so it's just a really cool picture of how God can use young people to turn around a nation. So often the church devalues young people or blankets them with, you know, criticism because they're young and young people are filled with youthful lusts. Paul tells Timothy, avoid the youthful lusts of life, you know, so they are they trend toward disobedience. They trend toward, you know, sowing their wild oats, so to speak. And we older people can get kind of judgmental upon them. Don't do that, church. Don't. Because young people can be used to turn a generation and a culture around. Case in point, Jeremiah. But here's the important thing about this text. Let's go back to it. It says that Hilkiah found the book of the law, which implicates the nation like this. They had lost the Bible. The nation that had been built by the word of God, right? It was God's word that formed them, called Abraham out of Ur the Chaldees, spoke to Isaac, spoke to Jacob, spoke through Joseph. It was God who spoke through Moses, establishing the law, bringing them out of Egypt through mighty signs, according to the word of the Lord, established them in the promised land, dictated their boundaries in the promise. The word of the Lord <clears throat> built this nation from the ground up, and now they have lost the word of the Lord, but they still had a nation. It is very impossible for a people, and I'm talking about church, to be built up on the word of God and yet forsake the word of God. It is very possible for religion to become more tied to form than the reform that God wants to do in our hearts. Mm, that'll preach somebody. Say amen. Let's go on in the text. Verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. This is the most important response to the Bible in the book of Kings. It's the first and second Kings. He tore his clothes. It's an ancient uh, posture of remorse and grief. He has heard God's word and he is shamed. He is, he is shell-shocked and he just tears his garments. He's mourning and grieving. Verse 12, it says, And the king commanded Hilkiah uh, the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah, uh, or Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary and Asaiah the king's servant saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written in it. Uh, the quick thing that I want you just to point out here is that it, this is Josiah's first response to God's word. He is broken. He is ripped open and he wants to know more. How do you respond to God's word? When you hear God's word, do you respond through humility and contrition or do you respond with pride and arrogance and you sit in judgment over God's word? See, we don't, and this is important. He hears the word of God and then he inquires. He hears God's word and then he prays. Can I give you a, a pro Bible study tip? I've been doing this on Sundays at my church a lot lately, but don't just read the word for ingestion and knowledge. Read it and then seek God through it. God, what do you what do you mean by this text? Before you just disregard it, and so many people are so fond of doing that because it's an ancient text and it can have some confusing texts and passages for us. Before you just outright reject it, inspect God's heart about it. Ask God to speak to you through it. Don't just read it. Ask God to reveal it. Amen. Let's move on in the text, verse 14. So Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Achor and Shaphan and Asaiah went to Huldah, look at this, the prophetess, there's a woman, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, 
son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to their other gods, to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. Now, interestingly enough, God uses a female prophetess to announce this judgment. Um, where I believe that the Bible restricts the, uh, the pastoral role or the elder bishop overseeing role to a male, it does not restrict prophecy only to males. Women can prophesy. Uh, women will be raised up as prophets in the New Testament. The Bible predicts that in Joel. Uh, Acts chapter 2 fulfills that. And you have Priscilla and Aquila and you have many other women in the uh, New Testament uh, spreading the word about prophesying. The role of pastor restricted to men, but the role or the, or the, or the ministry of prophecy is not restricted to men. Women and men can, can proclaim the word of God in a way that challenges people's hearts and brings them close to God. Otherwise, women can't witness to friends and family. <laughs> That's ridiculous. And I think it's beautiful that we have a woman heavily involved here in a national reform. She's, she's basically saying, look, the God has decided this wrath is coming. You have broken covenant with me. And uh, Hulda joins with the great names of Miriam and Deborah, great women of God in the Old Testament who literally saved the nation at, at, at key points in their history. And God uses Huldah here to do just that. So verse 18 says, But to the king of Judah, who sent you to the inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you heard, because, what? Look at this. Because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against this inhabitants that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes. You have humbled yourself. You have, you have, you have become broken through the word and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to, to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Okay, so it's a two-pronged prophet, <clears throat> prophecy here from Hulda. Number one, there's no turning back. The nation will be handed over to its enemies and it will be destroyed because they have forsaken the law. But Josiah, you responded, you were penitent, you heard, you humbled yourself and God is going to spare you. Do you see the picture here of the time that we're living in right now? We all have a choice when we hear God's word. God's word has pronounced doom for this age. I don't know if you know that, but it's true. There's coming a judgment upon the world, a worldwide cataclysmic judgment, and we stand before it. We might be on the precipice of it. God's word is going forth, and if we hear it and respond and repent and are penitent and confess our sins and hear and, 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 and weep for the things that we have done against God and, and return to him, <clears throat> return to him, we are gathered to him in peace and we don't see the disaster. We are saved from the judgment to come. First uh, Thessalonians talks about we're saved from the wrath to come because, of, because the word has changed and shaped our hearts. That's, that's the hope of the church, okay? One other thing I want to point out about this text too is that uh, this line, you, uh, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. This is the first time we have heard God speak to that, speak like that to somebody since... Um, um, the patriarchs since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Josiah joins an elite list of God-fearing men here, a really elite list. 
God says, I'm going to save you from peace. By the way, if you're in Christ and you respond to the word of God with humility and penitence, you join that elite list as well. That's chapter 22. Let's turn to page to chapter 23, verse 1. The king sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. Now, notice, please, that the king constantly works with a team. He's got elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He gathers them. He brings them in. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. So he doesn't just hear it for himself. He shares it. He reads it in their hearing. He wants them to know what God has said. Verse three, and the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. So covenants are a big deal in the ancient uh, biblical text. Uh, there are several covenants that God makes. There are some covenants that men make. And this is a covenant that a man makes, Josiah makes this covenant with the people. We're going to follow after God. We're going to commit our lives to God. Let's do this together. Good leaders bring other people in to serve God. And good leaders raise up other leaders to hunger and thirst after the word of God. That's what Josiah models for us here. So he goes to the house of the Lord. That's where it begins. Because the house of the Lord is a picture for us as New Testament saints. Uh, scripture says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your body is a temple? That is the house of the Lord. And the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You're not your own. You were bought with price. Honor your God with your body. So we have to understand that when the Bible talks about the temple in the Old Testament, it's talking about us, the New Testament temple. This is a picture for us. Reform in our lives and in our nation starts inside the church. You, you reform from within, okay? Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart. I have put your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. All transformation, all renewal, all development as a Christian starts with putting God's word in you period, full stop, end of story. If you want to change, get a hold of God's word, put it in you. I don't care if you don't understand it. Just put it in you. Start reading it. While you read it, pray and ask God to put it in your heart. Pray and ask God to help you understand it. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit to interpret it for you. Get under a preacher of the word of God. Someone who opens the Bible and teaches you verse by verse the word of God. Get under that. You need this in your life. If you, So many people want change, but they cannot change. The only thing that changes us is the renewal of our minds through the teaching of God's word. Okay, verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord. Now, now here's how reform begins. First, we're going to get things out. Bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, that's the false god, and for Asherah, the god of sex and fertility, and for all the hosts of heaven. <clears throat> that's the cosmic, you know, uh, astrology, uh, astrology stuff. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests of whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places of the cities of Judah and all around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations of the host of heaven. So this is how you first see reform take place in ancient Israel. It's how you see reform take place in your, in your own life. As God's word goes in, you've got to get stuff out. God, a proper response to God's word is what needs to go? Not what I need to be added to my life, but first, what do I need to be taken out of my life? What needs to get out of my life? Some of you got to ask yourself that question right now. What things are in you that need to get out of you 
as God's word challenges you. Lust of the flesh, pride of life, uh, lust of the eyes, uh, jealousy, covetousness, greed, um, lack of forgiveness, uh, bitterness. You know, these things that just that they, they just corrupt and, and, and uh, toxify your spirit, that needs to come out. That needs to come out. And that's what the word of God does. That's what reform does. First things come out, okay? Verse six, it says this, and he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord. Think about the fact that there was a, a giant pole in honor of sex <laughs> in the house of the Lord. This is so, it's, it's so insane how badly uh, Israel apostatized from God. So he took it out from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron. Kidron. Kidron is a valley. There's a brook, but there's a valley Kidron right south of the temple area. Uh, if you're going to Israel, you'll see it. And he burned it at the, at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the house of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. Look at what's in the temple. You got male cult prostitutes. You have sodomy being paid for in the temple. We see sodomy coming into the church right now. We see homosexuality being celebrated by many mainline denominations right now. What we are seeing today, we have seen before. This is nothing new. This is not progress. I say it all the time. It is not progress. It is regress. And, and so he's getting this stuff out. He's getting sodomy out of the house of God. He's getting sexual immorality out of the house of God. It's all getting purged. Uh, then verse Eight, it says this, and he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. Now, this is uh, a little bit of a, uh, an expanse of the kingdom of Judah because he's up to Geba. That's, that's a little bit further than where Judah's boundaries were under the divided kingdom. So as there's reform, I just point that out because as there's reform, there's an expansion of territory over Judah's kingdom. It says this, and he broke down the high places of the gates that were at this entrance to the, house, to the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. Those priests are false priests, by the way. Those are Jeroboam, probably leftover Jeroboam priests. Uh, that's why they are not judged as the other priests. Uh, and he kind of leaves them in peace. But he's removing, look at this, the high places. All series long, we've been talking about those high places that Jeroboam instituted when he... Um, Oh, sorry, Solomon instituted. Solomon instituted them. And then Jeroboam instituted them in the Northern Kingdom. And they've been around for 400 plus years. 400 plus years. Think about this. Jer Josiah is destroying and demolishing cultural institutions that led to idolatry. Which makes me ask this question of your life. What cultural institutions have you adopted into your life that are not godly? But you say, but you say, well, it's just part of my culture. Who cares? How old is your culture? Maybe 300 years old, 400 years old. If you're like me, descended from Europeans, we're what, 400, 500 years old. Not even that long, some of us. The, the nation of Italy has not been a nation for that long. I'm half Italian. I can't say, well, this is my culture. Italians eat a lot, so I can eat a lot. No, no, no. I must submit my appetite to God's word, not to my cultural authority. What in your culture, what have you been raised with? Maybe even national culture in America, you've been raised to do this. Well, in my family, just sports comes first. Well, in my family, you know, just making money comes first. Well, in my family, is most important thing is that you, you know, uh, I don't know, 
go to Catholic church or go to the, or, or, or go to the ball game on Sunday or whatever. And it's like, well, that's just cultural. That's not spirit. That's not God's word leading you there. That's, that's culture's word and your ancestral word. And this is what Josiah is doing. He is demolishing centuries old practices in the nation. And it's a beautiful picture of true spiritual reform. Verse 10. And he defied, uh, defiled, sorry, he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or daughter as an offering to Molech. This is also what was happening in ancient Israel. Child sacrifice, abortion, if you will. Abortion is nothing new. It is ancient. It is as old as humanity. People have been offering their children to the God of money for as long as people have been around. And ancient Israel was doing it as well. And what part of the spiritual reform that Josiah institutes here is a respect and a, a, and a sanctity of human life where we're not going to offer our children to the gods of this age so that we might make more money. That's really what Molech was all about. So he removes the abortive practices of ancient Israel. And verse 11, it says, he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire and the pillars, I'm sorry, and the altars of the roof on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, he pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. Now you see that he keeps spreading the dust of all these things that he burns um, all over the place, over the graves, over the common places, into the brook Kidron. The reason why is because that was a way to say, this place is not defiled. And so he is making it so that these places are never resurrected again. And by the way, he takes the altars that his grandfather made, which... Some of you need to do that with your life. What, what practices that are really not biblical come from my grandfather, come from my grandmother, that I need to cast down and burn? And you say, oh, I could never disrespect my grandparents. Well, your grandparents are not God, okay? And if your grandparents are with the Lord right now, they're probably shouting from heaven, yeah, get rid of that. We were messed up with that. Just get rid of that action. You know what I'm saying? You, you've got to learn to put God first no matter what, no matter what other people have told you, trained you to do, or taught you to believe. That's what true spiritual form looks like. Verse 13, and the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, look at this, Solomon, the king of Israel had built for Ashtar the abomination of the Sidonians and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and filled their places with the bones of men. He tears down stuff from Solomon's day. Solomon was as, as heralded in ancient Israel as you could get. And Josiah says, I don't care how important you think Solomon is. He messed up here and God's word prohibited this kind of activity. And I'm going to stand by God's word. That's what spiritual reform looks. It's hard. I know it's hard to, <coughs> some of you leave the church that you were raised in. But if your church or de denomination is going apostate, don't stay with the church just because you were raised in it. How, how foolish go with God's word. Go with God's word. Let him spiritually reform you and your ancestry, your lineage. will thank you for it. Instead of being tied to old practices, don't be tied to the form of religion. Be, be thoroughly engulfed in the reform of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Verse 15, moreover, the altar at Bethel. Who built Bethel? That was Jeroboam, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar. With the high place, he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs on the mount. 
And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled them according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed, who had predicted these things. I mean, this, these were the false prophets that Jeroboam raised up and, and established foreign worship in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he is demolishing it. He's digging up the bones, burning them, and scattering them on the altar. This guy is thoroughly possessed with the Spirit of God to bring about dramatic. I mean, when you want spiritual reform in your life, you need to take dramatic steps. You need to burn stuff. You need to destroy stuff. You need to get it out of your life. I don't know what you're holding on to, but it needs to be burned and destroyed and removed forever. And that's what Josiah does. Then this happens. Verse 17. Then he said, what is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. <coughs> and he said, let him be. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone. The bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines, also the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all that the Lord had done at Bethel, all that he had done at Bethel. And he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars, burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. So he's not just reforming the southern kingdom that is still alive in Judah. He's gone to Samaria. He's gone to Bethel. He has destroyed the false idols and high places. And then he hears about this. Remember back in 1 Kings chapter 3, way back 300 years earlier during the time of Jeroboam. Remember, we talked about this. The prophet came from Judah to the northern kingdom and said, look, <coughs> there's a king coming by named Josiah, a son of David. He is going to burn this high place. He's going to burn uh, the priest's bones on you. I mean, so amazingly enough, Josiah sees himself in the ancient scriptures, prophesying his birth and reforms. Who else sees that? Jesus. Jesus takes the scroll of Isaiah in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4 and says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. I am on the pages. That's me. Isaiah is talking about me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me. You know, this is, this is a picture of Jesus. He was prophesied to come and bring reform to the nation a nation that was facing impending and unrelenting doom, and those who follow him are saved from damnation. That is what this picture of Josiah is really about. Okay, verse 21, And the king commanded all the people, Keep the Passover of the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel, or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. So he brings them back to what? The Passover lamb, the picture of how Israel was saved. True spiritual reform always brings us back to Jesus. True spiritual reform does not necessarily erect new church buildings or have huge crowds or have charismatic speakers. True spiritual reform brings God's people back to the lamb of God, <clears throat> the lamb slain for our salvation. That's what Josiah celebrates here. Verse 24, and moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers, necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book of Hilkiah, the priest found in the house of the Lord that I'm sorry, written in the book that Hilkiah, the priest found in the house of the Lord before him, there was no King like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Of course, we now know that since this book has been written, there was a king that arose after him that was much better than him named Jesus. But nonetheless, what you see is 
that this man is thoroughly committed to the Lord at <clears throat> the instruction of the word of the Lord. The, 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 he read the scriptures himself. He transmitted the scriptures to others and the scriptures burned in his heart, produced radical reform nationwide and people were saved and healed. What does his name mean? Josiah, the Lord heals. Okay, verse 26, still the Lord did not turn from, his burn, from the burning anger of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah out of, all my, out of my sight as I have removed Israel and I will cast off the city that I have chosen, Jerusalem and the house of which I said my name shall be there. Just notice, by the way, God's willingness to hand over the temple to foreigners for judgment. God will judge churches in the same, in the same way. We see churches selling their properties. We see churches, heaven forbid, being turned into condos. Um, church doors are closing from uh, centuries old denominations. And I say good. I say fantastic. This is not always a bad thing when a church closes its doors. A church that does not preach the gospel deserves to have its doors shut, its property sold off to developers, and the memory of it wiped off the face of the earth. Because when a church stops preaching the word of God and the truth of God, it forfeits its right to exist. Period. Full stop. But God in chapter 23 of Kings said, I have already announced that this is going to happen. There's no turning back from it. Judgment will come. By the way, we are living in the exact same time. What does Peter say in 2 Peter 3.10? He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. We are headed toward judgment. Do you know that? Do you realize that? Do you think about that? I mean, I know we don't want to think about it. I know we've got plenty of preachers who tickle ears, who give people all the positive reinforcement and encouragement that they could possibly ask for, but no one really wants to talk about this. There is no saving this earth. Climate change is maybe a thing, and it's God doing it. <laughs> Torrential downpours, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, these are birth pains, Jesus says, of what's going to come. And he says there's going to come a tribulation such as never been seen on the face of the earth. It'll be like the days of Noah. It'll be like the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Thorough destruction is coming upon the world and we live before it happens. And you say, that doesn't encourage me. No, it should actually challenge you and convict you and call you to repentance, to turn to Jesus Christ, the true and better Josiah who spares you and saves you from the devastation that is to come on this world. Verse 28, the summation of Josiah's life. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And here's where he fails. Because all of Israel's kings ultimately fail because they point to the true king who will never fail, that is Jesus. But here was Josiah's failure in verse 29. In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria, to the river of Euphrates. King Josiah went out to meet him and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. And his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and he buried and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. There's a lot more to the story in 2 Chronicles 35. I'm going to, sum it, I'm going to summarize it for you. Uh, Pharaoh Necho was aligned with the king of Assyria. Remember I told you in the beginning of this episode that Assyria was on the decline nationally and spiritually and, and uh, they were about to be handed over to the Babylonians. Babylon was not the powerhouse that it, it would become, but... Assyria was definitely on the decline. 
uh, there was a war where people were threatening, it might have been Babylon, were threatening Assyria. And so Pharaoh Nico comes up and decides to, to defend Assyria. And 2 Chronicles 35 says that without provocation, Josiah decides to interfere and fight against, fight against the, uh, the Pharaoh Nico, probably because, and this is what commentators speculate, that Josiah had pro-Babylonian sympathies like his father Hezekiah did. Remember Hezekiah, grandfather, great-grandfather, sorry, Hezekiah. Remember, he showed the Babylonian envoy all of his treasure. So Hezekiah had this affinity for Babylon, and maybe his great-grandson, Josiah, also did. But the point is, the problem that Josiah, the, the mistake that Josiah made was that instead of being dedicated to what God was doing in his nation, he got, he got involved in other people's affairs. You know, one of the things that we might not realize that keeps us from going in the Lord is in, in interfering our lives in everybody else's life getting too involved in everybody else's business. And we live in the generation of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and threads and TikTok. And we can observe everybody until the cows come home. And how many of us are stagnant in our spiritual life because we are so saturated in everybody else's life. <laughs> we need to get back to God and not get involved in everybody else's life. Ooh, that's a good word for somebody. Stop the gossip. Stop getting involved. It's not your business. Just stay away. And, and Pharaoh Nico in 2 Chronicles 35 tells Josiah, look, God told me to go do this. So why are you interfering? And Josiah doesn't listen. And an arrow pierces his heart and he's dead. Sad, 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 sad end to his life. But he, again, he is another failed, ultimately failed king because there's only one true king and that king is Jesus. Okay, let me just quickly summarize uh, or go over the last four verses here, five verses of 2 Kings 23. Uh, Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign. This is Josiah's son. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah in the land of Hamath that he might not not reign in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. That's huge taxes right there that Pharaoh imposes upon the nation. And so the the sin, the failure of Josiah uh, extends to his son and uh, now they are subject to Pharaoh, the ancient nemesis of Israel, right? Uh, Verse 34 says, And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim the son of Josiah king in the place of of Josiah his father and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And he took Jehoahaz away and he came to Egypt and died there. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he but he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment to give it to Pharaoh Necho. So this is the end. Basically, we're getting to the end of the kingdom. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebida, Zebida, <laughs> Zebida, the daughter of Padiah of Ruma, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. I just will go through that quickly because there's not much to say there. Uh, these are uh, puppet regimes that have been installed by Pharaoh Necho. He is in charge now of the kingdom of Judah, and <clears throat> the inevitable demise of the nation is well underway. You know, and let me just say this in summation, that your nation is in trouble when your nation's leaders are more interested in serving the political or financial interests of other nations rather than the health of your nation. And if you are reading the news that I'm reading, you know exactly what I'm talking about in today's age in America. Let's tap into truth. Okay, we've got to talk about the possibility of losing the word. Just as Israel and Judah lost the word of God, the Bible, for hundreds of years, 
Many times in history, the church has abandoned the word for centuries at a time. Think about the, um, the toxic environment of the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th, 15th and 16th centuries, where they prohibited the common man from having access to the Bible, where they sold indulgences to build St. Peter's Basilica, where they uh, invented the terms, the ideas of purgatory and um, restricted the rights of priests to marry. They literally broke the word. The scripture warns against those who would restrict the freedom to marry. Colossians talks about it. And the Roman Catholic Church has been doing this for hundreds of years. And I don't think that all Roman Catholics are about hell at all. I think many of them are, are saved, born again. They're going to be with Jesus. They trust Jesus for their salvation. But the institution of religion can very quickly give itself over to traditions and human ideas and abandon the word of God. Even modern denominations in Protestantism have done this. The United Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Episcopalian Church, the Anglican Church. These are churches that are abandoning the truth of God's word. They have they have lost the word. The word is the is the most the word is the word. The word is the most important part of the church. Without the word we don't have anything. <clears throat> So look at church history, you'll see it <coughs> personally, personally. It's possible to be a Christian and, and, and to not be active in the word. That's not the next thing I want to share with you is that it's possible to be actively involved in Christianity and not actively involved in the word. So my question for you, Christian, is how big a deal is the word of God in your life? How regularly are you in it? Some of you are struggling with repetitive success, repetitive, stagnant sin in your life, but you don't give any time to God's word. God's word purifies. Just like it purified in Josiah's time, it can purify you in your time. God is looking for not form. He is looking for reform. <laughs> Jeremiah, who prophesied during the days of jo Josiah, said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Jeremiah 7.3, The God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. He's one of the most active voices in the time of Josiah because, uh, <coughs> like I said, there was four big prophets, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Nahum, who were instrumental in preaching the word of God during the time of Josiah's reform. You have big time uh, heroes of the Bible bringing the nation back all through the proclamation of God's word. Why is that important? Because there's tremendous potential in hearing the word of God. God's word is a dividing line of humanity. What's your response to it? When Josiah hears the word of God, he inquires further. He wants to ask, what does this mean? When Jeremiah found the word of God, he ate them. The words became a joy and a delight to his heart. And he was changed and he was empowered and he was inflamed with the passion of God in his life. This is, the, this is why you saturate your mind with the word so that the word can change and transform who you are. Now there's a process to hearing the word. And this is the process that people don't want to hear. But the point is, is that the truth is that God's word is meant to judge you. It judges you. It judges. Hebrews chapter four says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning. Another translation says and judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight. All are naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God's word judges you. Here's the question. Some people don't like that. I don't like, the, I don't like God telling me what I should do and what I shouldn't do. Here, here's the question I have for you. Are you ready? Do you let God's word judge you or do you judge God's word? 
Mm-mm-mm. Somebody needs to measure that up right now in your life. Do you hear God's word and say, well, I don't like that. And you fold your arms. I'm not sure I agree. I don't agree with that. Well, that means you're not saved. Honestly, you're not saved or you're a carnal Christian. You don't judge God's word. God's word judges you. God's word pierces your heart. And, 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 and there's, there's, there's too many people in the church today sitting in the pews, listening to the word and saying, I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> you're not arguing with man. You're arguing with God. And by the way, you don't have to give an account to the man that you're sitting there listening to. You have to give an account to God. So it's meant to judge you. It will judge you and it will transform you uh, into a new person. But you've got to have a response that um, is humble and contrite and, and open to what God wants to say uh, to your life. The true impact of the word is this, that God's word cleanses your heart through and through. John chapter 15, three, Jesus said, already you are clean. Why? Because of the word that I have spoken to you. We get clean the more we spend time in the word. You just got a little bit cleaner today by spending time with a deep dive. Make sure that you're hitting that subscribe button. <laughs> there we go. Make sure that you're hitting that notification bell and the like button. The more time you spend in God's word, the cleaner your heart becomes. The scripture purifies us through the word. What does, what does Ephesians 5? This is off the cuff. I don't have this in a, in a slide. But Ephesians 5.25, a passage that we discussed yesterday on the deep end. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. How do we get cleansed? Through the word of God. Not through waters of baptism. Mm-mm. Not through ceremony and ritual. No, by having our heart open and cut through with the word of God. That God might present us to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and that we might be holy and without blemish. This is what Jesus <clears throat> comes to do in us through the teaching of his word. And the last thing that I want to leave with you is this. Just as Josiah's reforms do not stop the inevitable judgment that comes upon the nation, so too Jesus' call to repentance to the nations does not stop the inevitable judgment of God upon the world. <coughs> Sorry, I'm getting over a little bit of a cold. It says, in, uh, we talked about 2 Peter 3.10 already. The point that I'm making is what must we do in the face of inevitable judgment? And Peter says this, since, verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? All right, the end of the world is coming and everything's going to burn up. What should you do? You should live lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, there, there's no stopping the inevitable um, the inevitable judgment of God upon this world. <clears throat> Excuse me. You look at what is happening in the news. You look at the corruption in leadership. You look at the corruption of our political system, the corruption of our news, the corruption of our educational system. The corrupt is everywhere. Corruption is, is pervasive. It's everywhere. And you say, wow, something's got to be done. Something is going to be done. And there might be a national revival and there might be a global revival. 
but there's going to be a global judgment. There might be a revival before the judgment, but there's going to be a judgment. And so turn to Jesus Christ, your true and better Josiah, who cleanses your temple from the inside out, who partners you with other people to cleanse your neighborhoods and your communities and your churches, all through the preaching and teaching of God's holy word. Amen. Support the channel if you would at the cash app, Tim Hatch Live or timhatchlive.com support. And get your questions in for 10 questions with Tim, which will come up, I think, next week. Uh, like, like, share, subscribe. As I say, ad nauseum on the channel. I'm so glad that you were here. Your support, your clicks, your likes, all that stuff helps the algorithm and boosts this content. Get it into other people's ears. Help me out as you get fed the word of God. God bless you and have a great night in Jesus' name.